Well, good morning. There's more, of nine of, more than nine of you here, and uh, so, oh me of little faith. Uh, it's raining, and you've lost an hour of sleep, and you have jewels in your crown this morning. I'm just here to tell you. This morning, we're going to be looking at uh, Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 27, and that is on page 1122 of your pew Bible. We're not going to read that passage up front. We're going to read it as we go through the, the uh, sermon as we did last week because there's so much of it. Um, but before we do that, let me tell you, I am ecstatic about being here this morning. And I don't know if it's because I'm filled with the Spirit this morning or I've had an extra cup of coffee, but I am very excited about this sermon. Uh, not the sermon necessarily, but the text. Because this is hope. And this is real. And I may cry periodically through this sermon, so uh, heads up. But this is the Christian life, and this is hope. And I am very excited about this passage this morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are no longer in despair. We are not at the end of Romans 7 where we're filled with extreme conflict and self-loathing. You have opened the way through Jesus Christ. And these are words of life. Lord, be with us this morning as we look at this passage. If there are hopeless hearts here this morning, may hope be infectious through the power of your Spirit. For you are the way and the truth and the life. And all hope and all peace and all joy is found in you. May we walk away this morning from this worship experience this morning having our fears crushed by the love and the hope and the joy that is found in Jesus Christ. It's in your name we pray, in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. Back in 2001, back before uh, my son was, old, uh, was uh, old enough to begin crying out and have us uh, pick him up in the mornings and, and bring him out, back when we could still enjoy a cup of coffee in the morning and watch the Today Show. Back in seminary, I remember 2001, there was a story about a man that caught my eye, caught my attention. The, man was, the man's name was Eric Waymeyer. And he had done something that no one had ever done before. He had scaled Mount Everest. Wait a minute, what? He'd scaled Mount Everest. Yes, he scaled Mount Everest, and though many had done that before him, he did it as a completely blind man. And so I'm sitting here watching this, the basically testimony of this man who is completely blind, tell how he scaled Mount Everest. And as he was talking about it, I'm thinking, wow. I'm sitting here thinking I might not be able to pass my next Hebrew or Greek test. And this guy, who was struck blind at the age of 13, has scaled Mount Everest. He went on to found a, a group called No Barriers. And their mantra, their motto, their saying is this. What is, in your, what, is, 
in your way, or I'm sorry, what is in you is greater than what is in front of you. What is in you is greater than what is in front of you. And I said, that'll preach. Because greater is he that is in you than he who is in the world. And as we come to the end of Romans chapter 7, and Paul is talking about his struggle, a struggle that will always be with us, we won't be perfectly glorified on this side of heaven, he introduces us to the hope of the Christian life. A life, it seems to many of us, is a Mount Everest in front of us. And he tells us that our hope is found not in our dead performance, but in the person and in a relationship with Jesus Christ, in a love relationship with Jesus Christ. He has said the old way of the written code is gone. The new way of the Spirit is here. It has come. And as we follow the Spirit's leading, we can have victory in this world. Not because there's anything within us, not because we can pick ourselves up by our own bootstraps, but because greater is he who is within us than he who is in the world. Or as Eric Wehmeyer likes to say it, what is in you is greater than what is in front of you. And that's because we are in union with Christ. We no longer have that dilemma of saying, you know, I just can't. In your flesh, no, you can't. But the spirit within you can. And that's the hope this morning. That's the way of the spirit this morning. So what is our reality now that we are in union with Christ by the Holy Spirit? As we look at Romans 8, 1 through 27, we see that because we are in Christ, there are at least four things that we can do. And the first one we see is we can live without fear of condemnation. In verses 1 and 2, Paul writes, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. We are no longer under the righteous wrath of God that will rain down on those that are still in Adam. But we still fear. I don't know if you're like me, but if you've ever read the story of Jesus cursing the fig tree, you're left with a little bit of self-doubt and questioning. You remember the story? Jesus is walking along and he sees this tree. He's going to the temple. And he sees this tree in the distance. And it, it's not the season for figs. And yet there are leaves on the tree and he goes up and he expects there to be fruit and he does not find any. And he curses the tree. And all of us go, whoa. This just confirms all my fears. God is a harsh man. It's not the season for figs, and yet he's demanding figs from this tree, and he doesn't find any figs, and he's cursing it. Is that me? Is that me in the Christian life? Is he going to be walking around, and I'm accidentally in the garden of God, and he goes, oh, look at all my beautiful trees that are bearing fruit. He says, oh, there's one right there. I'm going to have to go cut it down now. I'm going to curse it. That's our fear. 
It's the same fear that the man in the parable of the talents has when, when the master comes back and he says, I know you're a harsh man. Reaping where you did not sow. And the point of that parable is not that God is a harsh man, that he's not a harsh God. It's the, it's the problem of, of the self-talk within us. It's the problem of what our heart is saying. Our heart declares, God is a harsh man. God is a harsh God. And he's going to reap where he didn't sow. And that is not true. Because Jesus cursing the fig tree has nothing to do with you being united to Christ, it has everything to do with performance. In the context of the Middle East, they would have understood what that means. When the leaves of a fig tree appear, the early figs appear at the same time. So the fact that Jesus walks up to this fig tree and sees it has leaves, it's declaring to everybody around, I have fruit. And so when Jesus walks up to it, he finds in that tree a perfect example example of Israel's religious performance, declaring, I bear fruit when it is not connected to God, when it's not in union with Christ. And he curses the tree because he curses the mentality that says that I can bear fruit apart from God, and I'm going to announce it to the world. What he says to that tree and what he says in the temple is this. If you declare that you have righteousness apart from me, you shall be cursed because there is no righteousness apart from Christ. But if you're rooted in me, if you are a branch that has been engrafted into Christ, then you have no condemnation. You have no fear that I'll ever speak a word of curse to your tree, to your branch, that you'll be cut off, that you'll be thrown into the fire. You do not need to fear. And this morning, if you've come with that slavish fear, I want to speak the words of truth that are found here in Romans chapter 8. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Peter puts it this way. He says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 19, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he may bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they, were form- they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water, baptism, which now corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is not a stretch to say that, the, the, that Noah's ark is a picture of what it looks like to be in Christ. For as Noah and his sons and their wives entered the ark, it says in Genesis that God sealed the ark. And the rains of wrath and the floods of wrath and the deluge of wrath broke around that ark, falling squarely on the ark, while all eight inside 
we're saved. For those of us who've run by faith to Christ, who find ourselves in Christ, who are sealed by the Holy Spirit in Christ, we do not have to fear the floods, we do not have to fear the deluge, because we are in him who bore the wrath of God on the cross. So what does that mean? It means that you may be disciplined by God, but you will never, never, never be condemned by him. It means that you may experience conviction from God, but you will never experience condemnation. That's been dealt with on the cross when the deluge of God's wrath fell on Christ. Condemnation is over and fear is no longer your motivation. The fear of a Christian is that of reverence and awe, not judgment and wrath. And what happens when we're drawn back into fear of condemnation, though, when we're drawn back into fear of condemnation, it looks like something of Robert Robinson's story. Robert Robinson was the writer of the hymn we sang last week, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. He was a rebellious young man who came to faith under the preaching of George Whitfield. He became a, a believer and eventually a pastor, and he wrote several hymns. But later in life, he fell away and felt like he was lost forever. When he was on a stagecoach, he was traveling alongside this woman who, as providence would have it, began to sing, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. And it's reported that he said these words. Madam, I am the poor, unhappy man who wrote that hymn many years ago. And I would give a thousand worlds if I had them to enjoy the feelings I had then. He was so fearful that he was lost, he couldn't experience the joy of salvation, of repentance, of of feeling conviction and coming back to God. It's reported that the woman said to her, Sir, The streams of mercy are still flowing. That's what happens when we live a fear of condemnation. Instead of walking in the truth that we are no longer condemned. Because we believe that the streams of mercy have dried up. They no longer flow for us. We stop seeking to be filled by the living water of his Holy Spirit because we don't feel worthy to drink deeply of that relationship. We don't feel that God would ever want us back in his presence. We feel our sin has precluded us from drinking deep of the mercy and the grace we find in Jesus Christ. But the truth of Romans 8, 1 through 2 is that the streams of mercy still flow. And we can live without fear of condemnation. But second, we see that we can. We can walk by the Spirit's liberation. This is verses 3 through 11. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. 
For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Instead, or indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Walking in the things of the spirit, walking in the way of the spirit, sets its mind on the things above. Go back to the story of Eric Weimar. How in the world could a blind man traverse the crevasses that lead up, but plunge seeming infinitely through the ice to be able to get to the summit of Mount Everest. He was not alone. He was following in the steps of one who went before him. And he was listening to the sound of the bells that they wore as they went ahead. And he felt for their footsteps ahead of him. We do not have to traverse Everest alone. We keep in step with the Spirit. We seek His voice. We seek His leading through the Word of God, which requires a quietness of heart, of time spent before Him listening with our heart captivated to His Word on where to put our foot, where to plant the next step as we follow after him. And what interferes with that listening to the Holy Spirit is by setting our minds on things of the flesh. It causes this disruption, this static that we, can't, we cannot hear through. And so we are invited not to focus, not to put our thoughts on the things of the flesh, but on the things of God. And this has to do with our thought life. This is more than the power of positive thinking. This isn't willing ourselves to do good things. This is remembering that God's spirit is within us and that he gives us the power. He is the resource that we need. And what he empowers us to do is to focus on the things of the spirit. Our thought life deeply, intrinsically, is connected to our walk with Christ. It is a daily battle to focus on God's providence against our need to attain riches, for example. Or to focus on fulfillment in Christ rather than the lust of the flesh. Or to focus on how Christ gave of himself rather than us looking to our own self-protection. It's a daily struggle. It's a moment-by-moment struggle. And as soon as our mind and our hearts lose their focus on the riches that we have in Christ, the more we become conformed to the pattern of the world in our hearts, and it seeps into our lives and begins to to produce alienation and fear. It has to come back to the Spirit, because no matter how fast and well-equipped your car is, if you don't have oil, the engine's going to burn out. 
if you don't have a battery, it's not even going to crank. If you don't have gas, there's no way to get down the road. Life without humble reliance upon the Holy Spirit to guide your heart and mind will lead to futility, and it will be a series of failed resolutions. Much like that gym membership you purchased in January that you just haven't got back to yet. But you're going to. And it brings only fear and self-loathing rather than the joy and freedom that we have in Christ. The Christian life is not a series of resolutions. It is a moment-by-moment trust in what God can do in and through us. We cannot live without the Spirit. We cannot cut God out of the equation. And bearing fruit for Christ doesn't come by just trying harder. Or as much as you like Nike, just do it. That's not life by the Spirit. That's being dutiful. Instead, it comes by abiding in Christ, setting our thoughts on him and asking him to help us do that which pleases God. Otherwise, it's like holding up a broken branch of an apple tree and saying, bear fruit. Bear fruit. Okay, I'm going to try a little harder this week. I'm going to bear fruit. How ridiculous does it look like? to hold a broken branch and walk around saying, well, I'm going to bear fruit sometime. That's not how you grow fruit on a broken branch. You grow fruit on a broken branch by seeking the tree that has life and engrafting that branch into the life of the tree. And that's what Paul is telling us here. Unless you are engrafted by the Spirit of God into Christ, into union with Christ, you will not bear fruit. No matter how much you try, you beat your chest and say, I'm going to do better. Your better isn't good enough. But the fruit of God is pleasing to him. Because you didn't grow it. He grew it in you. We cannot expect to bear fruit without abiding in the Spirit. But God tells us through the words of Paul that we can. We can walk by the Spirit if we are abiding in Him. But thirdly, we can trust in our adoption. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, then you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Adopted children deal with their own set of struggles and identity issues. And there are issues of feeling that we don't belong or that somehow we are lesser than natural-born biological siblings. And when they feel they are lesser, they often try to earn their place in the family. I was talking with a friend who also adopted. We adopted from birth. They adopted an older child. And when they brought him home, he, they noticed very quickly that he was a very dutiful child and he would do all of these things. And one day, they realized why. He came to them and said, look what I've done. Do you love me now? And they had to sit him down and explain to him. He was part of their family forever. It wasn't about what he did. 
His name had been changed, and he was part of their family. But don't we say that to God? Don't, don't we say, see what I have done? Do you love me now? And he says, I can't love you any more than I already love you. Because I've given my son for you. And I've brought you into my family and I've wrapped my name around you. Those of us who have been adopted into the family of God understand that child's question. But the spirit within us cries, not, do you love me now? But, Abba, Father. For we did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but we have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And the Spirit himself continually bears witness to our hearts, to our spirit, that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If in your heart you hear whispers of slavish fear, you are not hearing from God. I'm going to say that again because I want to make sure that you heard me. If you... If in your heart you were, you were hearing whispers of slavish fear, you were not hearing from God. You were hearing from flesh or else you're hearing the very words of the enemy. Instead, Paul says that the Spirit testifies again and again to our heart that we are children of God and that we have a new standing before him. But in the way of the new Spirit, we are heirs and, and, and inheritance has nothing to do with us. It's the riches that are given to us by God because we're family. And it's that joy of being in family that transforms us and causes us to want to live that family name. William Cooper was another hymn writer. And his life was not unlike that of Robert Robinson except for one difference. The man who would eventually write God Moves in a Mysterious Way lived a life of despair, depression, and mental illness. He had a pervading sense that he had been cursed and was beyond saving, much like Robinson had. In a sanitarium, a doctor who was there ministered Christ to him. And one day he, finding a Bible, took it and read it and felt that if only he was not lost, how hopeful these words would be. Until one day he read Romans 3.25. And after he read that the old way was over and the new way of the Spirit had come, he testified to this. Immediately I received the strength to believe it. And the full beams of the Son of Righteousness shone upon me. I saw the sufficiency of the atonement that he had made, my pardon sealed in his blood, and all the fullness and completeness of his justification. In a moment, I believed and received the gospel. Whatever my friend had said to me long before revived in all its clearness with demonstration of spirit and power. Unless the almighty arm had been under me, I think I should have died with joy and gratitude. My eyes filled with tears and my voice choked with transport. I could only look up to heaven in silent fear, overwhelmed with love and wonder. By faith, the spirit of fear and slavery melted away, and he was freed. Later, Cooper would go on to write a hymn called Love Constraining to Obedience, and it's one of my favorite hymns because of this line here that sums up new life in the Spirit perfectly. To see the law by Christ fulfilled, to hear his pardoning voice, changes a slave into a child, and duty into choice. 
If we're locked into slavish fear and not, and not fully trusting our new identity, our adoption in Christ, we will be bound up and unfruitful in our walk with Christ. But the Spirit of God helps us and reminds us that we are God's children and that we can live for the joy set before us in gratitude. And we can find fellowship even in his sufferings, which brings us to the last point today. Because we are in Christ, we can endure our present tribulation. Verses 18 through 27. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope at all. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what we should pray. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. In his book, The Return of the King, Tolkien wrote a scene when after the one ring is cast into the fires of Mount Doom and Sam and Frodo have been saved from Mount Doom, Sam wakes up and sees Gandalf, whom he saw die earlier. And he says something so poignant that it captured Tolkien's own faith and belief in where human history is going. Sam says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? A great shadow has departed, said Gandalf. And then he laughed, and the sound was like music. Or like water in a parched land. And, he was, and, and as he listened, the thought came to Sam that he had not heard laughter and the pure sound of merriment for days upon days without count. That's the joy we await for. That's the joy... That creation awaits. Everything that is sad is going to come untrue. Paul personifies creation here as, as awaiting our full adoption as sons. But aren't we adopted? Yes, we are. But there's also a future fulfillment. The resurrection of our bodies is the final demonstration of our adoption as children of God. And the creation awaits that glorification. Why? Because the creation itself will be renewed. There will be a new earth. Just as we are a new creation spiritually, we shall have a new creation bodily. And we shall live in a new creation. Free of sin and any other barrier between us and the Lord. For we will dwell in his presence forever. Right now he dwells within us, but we shall see him face to face. The word here for eager expect anticipation literally means to stand on tiptoes as if you're looking over Something to see something glorious. And that's what creation longs for. And that's what we long for. And because of the joy set before us, we can look 
in hope to that new world, to that new body, to that new life. That is the expectation. And we have to start with that expectation in order to endure our present sufferings of the fallen world system that stands against Christ and of the fallen world experience of death and corruption. For the believer, we can, by faith and by the Holy Spirit, endure the present tribulation of this world because we see that there is a glorious end. Paul describes it as the pains of childbirth, a purposeful pain that leads to a glorious conclusion. Just as a mother toils in labor for the joy of seeing her child face to face, we toil with the joy of seeing Christ face to face. That's the payoff. And that's the new world free of corruption. And the Holy Spirit's like a labor coach who encourages us in the here and now. Which is why Paul is telling us in verse 26, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Like Jesus endured the cross for the joy set before him, we can endure this fallen world, suffering for his name and enduring the present reality of death. Because we look forward to the joyful, eternal communion with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit that we experience now in union with Christ. One day this will pass and what we see in part will be fully realized. But until then, the Spirit unites us to Christ and enables us. It enables us because greater is He who is in us than he who is in the world. And though we walk in blindness, we can walk in victory and we can scale the Everests. Eric didn't stop there. He scaled six more mountain peaks, the highest peaks in the world. And when that was done, he decided that was too little. He was going to go down in a kayak on the Colorado River through the Grand Canyon. Because he knew what was in him was greater than what was in front of him. What's in front of you this morning? I'm telling you this. It is not greater than he who is in you. Because the Spirit says that we can live without fear of condemnation. We can walk in the Spirit's liberation. We can trust in our adoption. And we can endure our present tribulation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there is so much joy in truth here and the liberation that we find in your spirit. You freed us from can't to the ability to walk. Not in our power, but in your power. In love that is without fear, but with hope that we can overcome. Because you are in us. And you have overcome. You will cause us to overcome those things which stand before us till the day that we see you face to face. And we look forward to that day. And amen, come Lord Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.